Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. In a few moments, I'm going to play a recording of a conversation I had with David C. Baker. I think you're going to find this conversation super interesting and super relevant because it touches on what I think is a very important but not very often discussed subject, which is how exactly do you develop economically valuable expertise? Of course, how you actually do that is going to be different depending on what it is you do for your clients. And so David and I were trying to talk about some of the the sort of reusable patterns, if you will, by which the, the means by which firms like yours develop economically valuable expertise. David brings a particularly valuable viewpoint to this conversation because he's worked with something like a thousand uh, firms, mostly creative agencies, very closely and seen the inside of those that have managed to develop what he calls a black box. And I realized in editing and listening back to this conversation that David and I, I think, uncover a lot of uh, stuff that is is really pertinent to this conversation, but we never actually said what's so great about this, uh, you know, the analogy that you're going to hear us use is this idea of a black box. What's so great about having a black box, a, a sort of function machine for taking a client's situation and adding value to it? And the best that I can come up with right now to try to illustrate the value is think back to something that you did in software development before there was a framework or a library that made that thing so much easier. So think about, you know, before there was an authentication library and you had to hand code the entire authentication stuff yourself. Or think back before there was Twitter bootstrap and you were doing front-end design without the aid of a framework to make it fast, faster and easier. Having what, again, we use this analogy of a black box, having that does for your ability to help your clients what a framework or library does for your productivity as a coder. It's not a panacea. It doesn't make everything better, but it's this incredibly valuable asset. In fact, it's it's a sort of intellectual property asset that you can bring into your client engagements to produce value. And before there even is an engagement, you can use it to differentiate yourself from alternatives to hiring you. So I just wanted to give that little bit of context. By way of introduction, if you haven't heard of David, it's probably because you haven't been listening to this podcast very long. I, I did an extensive review of his most recent book, The Business of Expertise, some episodes back. The book is wonderful. David's expertise, in my view, is singularly valuable. And if you don't know anything about David, I can send you to his website at davidcbaker.com. All one word, davidcbaker.com. I'll link to that in the show notes. Here's our conversation. I hope you get as much from it as I did. David, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Philip. It's good to speak with you. This is fun. This is very different than a normal podcast because we know each other and we've got a topic that's really interesting. It's not rote, like you're not pulling out 17 questions that you ask every one of your podcast guests, right? <laughs> this is very different. Well, I have to say, after I listened to you and Blair talk about the questions you hate getting, 
I was like, uh oh, I need to, <laughs> need to go Better strike a couple. For- <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we've gotten so much feedback on that episode. We kind of went nuts on it. But no, but seriously, back to this, it's, it's fun because it feels like it's more we're getting together over a cup of coffee and talking about something that is really interesting to both of us. And a lot of people are listening, but it's more just a casual conversation. I'm excited about it. Me too. Well, do you mind if I, I tell a story real quick? Sure, yeah. So not long ago, I came across this article that was talking about this uh, expert firm called Mon- Monroe and Associates. And here's what they do. <clears throat> uh, like, here's one example of a thing they sell. It's a 23,000-page long report on the 196,000 manufacturing steps that combine 54,000 parts into a BMW i3. Cost for this report, 150000 bucks. So they sell this report to BMW's competitors and sometimes to, you know, the car manufacturer themselves. And they do this because uh, the competitors are interested in what BMW is doing. BMW is interested in whether they're getting um, shafted by their parts suppliers. And so Monroe is has all the hallmarks, I think, of expertise. They have economically valuable expertise as evidenced by these you know, fantastically expensive reports, which for their clients are like a drop in the bucket, but still, you know, it's like, wow, that's a lot of money for a, a big 23,000-page report. This expertise is derived from what you identify in your book, The Business of Expertise, as pattern-matching ability. But there's this thing in the middle of that sort of stack, which is how they um, create that expertise. And they do it by simply by disassembling things. So they take these, they buy cars, um, and they they take them apart all the way down to the you know the nut and the bolt, and then they use their broader expertise from having done this a bunch of times to say, okay, we well we're looking at this, and it's made of this materials, and it costs this much to manufacture, it takes this much time, and so they're disassembling things. That is a means by which they cultivate their expertise which is great for them, but if you did the same thing to try to understand a living human body, it would not work out so well. You'd be disassembling a live human being. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, there's a word for that. I guess it's somewhere between torture and murder, right? Right, right. So I, I'm interested in talking to you about this means of cultivating expertise. I, naturally, we're going to scope this conversation to to the type of companies that you and I both work with, which are, you know, with me, it's dev shops. With you, it's a sort of broader spectrum of creative agencies. And I'm to me, it's very interesting because it's it tends to be specific to the type of business, but also I think that means it doesn't get talked about a lot because it's specific to the type of business. But you've been inside in a very meaningful way, uh, like what a thousand such businesses. Yeah, close to that at this point, right? And somewhere along the way, I think you used the term a black box. You said about 50 of them, which would be about 5%. Mm -hmm. This is going back quite a bit in your your catalog of content, David. But somewhere around 5% of your clients have a black box. Can, Can we start with that idea and then just sort of take it from there? Right. And it's interesting like to hear you reflect that idea back to me because I think if we were to let's say we were to um, survey a thousand firms and say how many of you have a unique proprietary process that you use that's different from other folks 
And then if maybe we said like a black box kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I would guess that many more, a much larger number than 5% would say that they have that, right? And when I dig in deeper, I don't see much black box material. I don't see any algorithms, for instance, or anything that could be programmed into a calculator where you could ask your clients to answer 20 or 50 questions and, and out would spit some direction for or looking at something deeper and so on. So, yeah, and, and what's bothered me about that is, is first of all, it's really interesting because I would hear that many times from agencies, and then I would immediately ask them, all right, how much time do you spend bringing your new employees up to speed on that black box? And then they would kind of look at each other like, I'm not sure what that has to do with this. Mm-hmm. And it would, to me, it was like, well, if, if it isn't, if you're not spending a lot of time bringing people up to speed or explaining it, then it probably isn't all that proprietary. But it feels to me like having that little black box, that sort of proprietary way of looking at something really, really solves the issue. I I was um, teaching a seminar a few years back, and we, it was a two-day thing, and the first day ended with a discussion of this. And I was perturbed because I looked across the audience and nobody seemed to be really connecting with what I was saying. And I was perturbed because I didn't know if it was me. Like, am I, have I just lost my mind here or maybe they have, but it's like the odds are pretty, you know, they're greater that I'm the one who lost my mind. So I went back to home that night and I was really tired after speaking all day. Mm -hmm. And I came up with one of those defined proprietary processes in a symbolic sort of test way for one of the clients. And then we spent three hours the next morning going over it and people's eyes opened up. It's like, oh, now I know what you're talking about, right? And so it can be, it's really simple at its base level, but it just changes everything about, like when you, when you first started um, consulting as an expert with dev shops, you started noticing patterns really quickly i would guess i would i would think within like three or four of those and now if i could get you slightly inebriated and and pick inside your brain you could probably give me a couple hundred of those some of which had already been thoroughly tested and some were just instinctual for you i would guess right yeah i mean to make that more vivid for the folks at home the thing that i'm particularly interested right now in is the relationship between uh, risk-taking behavior and success in establishing a, a, a courageous market position, to use your language, or just you know a strongly differentiated market position. You know, at first, it's kind of a gut feel. You just sort of think back over the people you've talked with and worked with in some close capacity, and you you just kind of. I mean, this is how it is for me. I want to, I want to hear your sort of uh, maybe origin story, if you will, for uh, your total business review, which might be a much more mature version of what I'm talking about in my own business. So at first, it's a gut feel, and then a sort of hunger sets in for this has got to be. There's got to be a way to um, prove this or make it more objective. It's not that it has to have numbers next to it, although that does lend that sense of objectivity. So that's kind of where I'm at, and I'm starting to add in that objective layer. Right. Do you see right. that same sort of thing where there's a kind of hunger for something more objective or you use the word algorithmic? 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Does it have to be algorithmic? How do you see that unfold from whatever the starting point is for your clients? Uh, it's like that's such a rich topic because I think folks in the, the folks that you and I serve, they they do base so much on instinct and the notion of using an algorithm is so foreign to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet like a dev shop would be much more open to the sense that math could solve some of these things. But in the end, you know, to be really smart, to be a pattern matcher. You've got to have. You've got to be running a business that's run well enough that you're not scurrying from one problem solving to another problem solving situation, because at its very essence, developing patterns is incredibly wasteful. You have to be willing to say no. That was a stupid idea, and you've got to be willing to say that many, many times. Which means you're throwing away most of the work that you spent trying to come up with some new pattern that would yield an intelligence that you could apply on solving a particular client's problem. So it does start with instinct, but then you've got to have the time to think about it. And then you've got to be willing to be very wasteful with your ideas until you land on the right thing. And it starts in such small, it's almost embarrassing to talk about this because it's, we're, we're expecting some, I don't know, big revelation from on high where Moses is going to throw the 10 commandments down from the mountaintop. It's not that way at all. It's it's something really, really simple. Like for me, one of the earliest ones I remember was being asked repeatedly by my clients, how, um, how much time do I need to devote at my firm to bookkeeping? And I had no idea what the answer to that was, and it struck me as a really boring question, maybe even a boring answer. Mm-hmm. But it, I realized that, okay, now I've worked with – 30-some firms, and this was many, many years ago, I can go back and I can look at how many hours a week they're spending and I can come up with an answer and then I can test that, right? Mm-hmm. Or another time when I kept getting this question, th- these these conversations with principals who were very introspective, some of them, and some of them weren't. And I was just curious. as like, why, why are some principals introspective when we talk and some aren't? And it was because the introspective ones were facing some lease boundary. They... They didn't. They they had to make a decision about whether they wanted to rent their small office space for another three or five years, and that was the only long term commitment they had to make. It's like so. These if you're if you're just paying attention differently, and you start to notice patterns, it prompts you to get curious and to dive in. And many of your first, I guess, your first attempts to solve that are just simply they're just wasteful, and they don't they don't lead to anything meaningful. I also think we're we're hesitant to be wrong publicly as well and so we're you know we're not going to get smart until we start testing these things and throwing them out there and the risk there is that you know this observation that you think you figured out isn't going to work i love this thought like what what made you think about this topic like filling this gap between pattern recognition and developing expertise what led you to think about like this whole gap that allows people to the actual development of expertise. What led you to be curious about that? It, well, it's one of those patterns you you said I would share only under uh, the influence of alcohol, which is not true. Um, yeah, you, you're not going to know if I'm drunk right now or not, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll share it willingly. And it's um, it, it has to do with the people I work with. So they're software developers, and they face a constraint that is like a lot of other engineers face, which is it either works or it doesn't. 
It's, you know, the bridge either, uh, you know, carries the traffic it's designed to carry or it collapses under the load. The software either compiles or it doesn't. So that leads them to a mindset where they're extremely critical of their own expertise. And I say this, I hope, with the greatest empathy because, um, like, I'm kind of a perfectionist myself. So I totally understand that mindset of, I'm not an expert until I have this level of mastery that would um, that would work in the most stringent environment. At the same time, I'm trying to help these uh, this same group of people develop like singularly valuable expertise, which I think involves taking some risks that they're not comfortable with, that they're generally not comfortable with. Mm. And so that's what led me to think about this idea of, I call it leaning out over your skis, where you are sort of pushing the envelope of your expertise, not with the technical stuff, but with applying it in a, in a particular business context. Mm. So when you, know, when you specialize vertically, that's what you start doing. You're like, well, I choose this business context to apply my software development expertise. And it's, it scares the hell out of my, <laughs> of my clients to think about doing that. And that's, I mean, frankly, that's what led me to this question. Yeah. But w- would you agree with me that in many cases you feel like your clients have developed deeper expertise than they think they have? In other words, your assessment of their expertise is, is higher, friendlier than their own. Uh, well, let me, a- let me let you ask that, answer that question first, and then I'll, I'll say to part B to that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, the, um, it gets let's see the expertise we're talking about is is applied technical expertise. I think you could you know extend that definition to your clients who are maybe a little more on the creative end. I'm making a broad generalization here, but they're a bit more on the creative end, right? Mm-hmm. But they right. still have technical expertise in well, this is how we design a website or this is how we run an ad campaign or this is how we do branding. Mm-hmm. And the focus for my clients tends to be that corpus of technical expertise and not so much the application of that expertise to a business problem. And so I think they devalue what they've picked up along the way about that second category, the application to a business problem. Mm. Am I explaining yeah. that reasonably well? Yeah, right. And I think the other reason, so it's interesting. So you and I have both sensed that, that, that our clients have deeper expertise than they acknowledge. And I think part of why that's happening is because their most expertise-laden statements are the things that they say a lot, and they've heard themselves say those things a lot. And so they accept them as just commonplace when, in fact, somebody else might view them as like, pretty like pretty insightful so one of like when somebody's starting from scratch like this is not an advanced level or even a mid-level exercise for them it's really from scratch i encourage them to record their side of the conversation and then listen back to it because they will end up saying things that are fairly brilliant to their clients or their prospects and Mm -hmm. everybody's dumb when they're working by themselves it's really you you have to be on the phone or in a meeting to really sound intelligent or if you happen to be working with somebody else and i know some of our clients don't have other people they work on their own is to have somebody else there and have that person watch the other folk uh, the other person that they're or the other folks in the room and when those folks ears perk up then write down what it is that the person just said because so they have a lot more innate expertise but what they 
really have done a poor job of is actually articulating that into a system. That's the part that really is missing. And they, first of all, they don't know that they're as smart as they are. And then they don't really know how to package that. And that's sort of the black box thing that, that, that they're failing at. Right. And that's what I try to help them with is like, is to systematize their expertise so that it's reapplicable so that you can actually begin to develop it more as a system. I, I didn't realize until just now that I sort of have that one-sided uh, recorder in that um, my wife and I share an office space. So she's often like overhearing my calls, but only my end of it. Right. And she'll occasionally do that. Like, oh, you, you know, you said this thing. It just uh, that seemed so right on or so oh, um, yeah, insightful yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting everybody populate their office with a, a loved one, but – uh, I hadn't really realized until you said that, that that happens for me. Yeah. When my wife walks into my office, cause I work from home, she'll, she, what she most often says is, why were you upset with them? <laughs> and, and I'll say, no, I wasn't upset. I was just being passionate, but, but from her perspective, it's not like I was upset with them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're both seeing that at some point there's this, there's this sort of sense that, the the raw technical expertise alone is not enough, um, and there's a way to start recognizing where you have this extra kind of insight that's about applying it, you know, to a specific business. W- what do you see people do as the first step to start to formalize that that other kind of insight? Yeah, and I just to set the expectations. I think. Like you'll end up with one of these little black boxes every four to five years that you're in business. So mm-hmm. we're not going to have 20 of these. You're, you know, let's say you've been in business for 20 years. You might have four or six of these things, but then you, you keep building on it and it's just really perfect. So here, here's how I would, here's how I would urge a client who's, who, finally gets to the point where they recognize, wow, I do have some expertise. And you and I both believe that that's not going to happen until they've made the right and the courageous positioning decisions, right? But that's a whole other subject. But obviously, yeah. it's it's tied to that. Okay, so they, they've developed some expertise, and they're willing to look at this. And what I ask them to do next is I say, okay, and if we're doing this together, we, we actually do this. If not, then I just have them do it on a grid. But if we're doing this together, we go over to a huge whiteboard. And what we do is we write down the names of about 10 clients that they've done work for. And I don't care whether they enjoyed the work or not for the purpose of this exercise, but just two things have to be true for the client to be on that list. They have to have made money, uh, or at least the possibility of making money. Um, And secondly, they have to have done effective work for the client. So as long as those two things are true, then we write like about 10 client names up there. And then across the top from left to right, we write down all of these categories that we can think of. And so the example that I came up with that night between the days of a seminar was there, I have a client who focuses on marketing for higher ed. And so I, I said, okay, and I knew they'd done work for Belmont, for Vanderbilt, for Purdue, for Notre Dame and USC. And so then I said, all right, here are the categories. And I'm, I'm not an expert in that area. So I'm just making the rest of this stuff Mm -hmm. up. But I said, here and I came up with 60 categories just off the top of my head some of them aren't real and I'm not going to read all of them but I'll just give you an example of one so student body size whether it's public or private 
liberal arts, STEM, religious, so on. Acceptance ratio, U.S. news rating, tuition, percentage covered by scholarships, cost of room and board, how many of them requested view books. And so there are like 60 of these things, right? So we just fill out this, this large chart, so to speak, on a whiteboard, and we're just looking at that. And at this point, I'm picturing John in a beautiful mind looking at this chart, seeing if he can see patterns. And now, and I'm just going to keep talking here. I'm going to be making a lot of shit up because I don't know that field necessarily. And But here's an example of a pattern you might see. It's like, oh, wow, um, view books are a lot more important to private schools, not public ones. Mm-hmm. Or if um, if a school costs more than this, then you can expect your distant population to be 60% or I'm just making all kinds of, but you come right. up with all of these hypotheses and you write them down. Now these become the things that you test because right now you haven't, you're not any smarter. You just know where you might be smarter. So if we translate this to like one of your, one of your clients, a dev client, mm-hmm. then, then maybe it's not at all about the expertise of their development work. Maybe it's about the process of working for a client. And so they say, all right, how many decision makers were there? How long did this project take? What was the total cost? What was the development platform that we were working on? Um, what um, was this, did this? Did this include a mobile app as well? Was it multi-platform? You come up with fifty of these categories, and you look at the ten clients that this that you that this client, your client, has worked with, and you see if you notice patterns. And all of and you have no idea where it's going to lead, but it's like sitting down with ten of the most intelligent people in the world. And having a day to explore people's minds. That's what's so exciting about this interim between pattern recognition and developing expertise is, and that's the power of the grid to me. I don't really know what the, I don't know the name of that thing is, but that's how I found is the best way to really get started. Does that make sense? It does to me. I, <clears throat> I worked with a long, like in a sort of previous career life with a regional trucking company in mm. South Carolina, and they had an interesting variation on what you just talked about, e- even simpler, which is to do a scatter chart. And so they right. would, uh, they were curious, uh, like they have, think of them as a sort of uh, regional version of FedEx. So they're, they're, they're driving towards this one thing, on-time deliveries, right? And they were at, at a point in their company's uh, development where they did not know what contributed to on-time deliveries. And so they would take all the factors they could measure about their shipping operation and did a scatter plot to try to correlate what what seemed to correlate with on-time deliveries. And in their case, it was um, this other factor, like how quickly they got everything loaded on the truck. I'm sort of oversimplifying this. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but this was for them a core piece of intellectual property about how they ran their operation, right? And the the means by which they got there was this very simple technology of a scatter plot. They actually started to include this in their employee training because they felt like this was such a valuable tool for anybody who was in a management role, right? It, it maps almost directly to what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Like you could picture them saying, okay, what makes makes a successful driver? What makes a successful um, scheduler? Like you could – and right. it's not like people aren't going – all we're looking for is short 
shortcuts. We're looking for ways to compress the time so that it doesn't take us 10 years to realize something. But with the right sort of discipline and lens and pattern matching, we can start to develop deeper intelligence in 18 months instead of 10 years. It's really just a short, it's just training your mind to see things a little bit differently. In your most recent book, you said something that uh, stung a little bit because it was true of me. And you said that a lot of us are bad with data compliance. Right. Do you remember writing that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. This might be a good time to kind of expand on that point because it seems so related to this. Like we're talking about looking through data, but if your data is disorganized or ad hoc, it becomes a lot harder to do this. It is for sure. And, and the, the difficulty is that, by definition, entrepreneurial risk takers are bad with data compliance. There is a small subset of folks who are both, who are good at both, and those happen to be the control freaks, the <laughs> ones who are, have a – they're called um, – they have what's called a DC split. They, yeah. they have a, they're very desperate about making decisions and being in charge, but they're all, also desperate about those decisions being correct, and so they're control freaks. I have a little bit of that. I'm not as bad as, as some folks. I have a little bit of that. But, yeah, it's really difficult because I'm a, a firm believer that that science, that intelligence needs to be based on data. And in some cases, the data can be pretty sloppy, but it le- needs to at least be data. We have to we have to be able to create a chart of it of some of some kind. And I I'm a little bit wacko here because I I have such an aversion to people making shit up that I, I really do want to see data behind things. And so that is a challenge for entrepreneurs because we are we don't Data requires patience and accuracy, and mm-hmm. entrepreneurs are bad at both of those things. But your subset of clients, I would think, may struggle a little bit less than that because they're just not going to be successful as developers, as dev shops, unless they're pretty good at, at quality control. Like you said, it's either going to compile or it isn't, right? Yeah. Although I do have this uh, sort of theory I'm developing that there is a difference between engineers and scientists, and I think it has something to do with data like the the engineers are like oh just give me what i need scientists i think are looking more broadly for you know there's just i think they're looking more broadly maybe we can make this more personal though like did you were you always good at uh you know um data discipline or did you get better at it along the way and if so what did you figure out that made you better at it well i i've always had a propensity for data but i would say what keeps me plugged in at a minimal level is fear like i don't i don't want to be audited by the irs you mm-hmm. know i don't i don't want i don't want to look stupid in front of a client mm-hmm. i um i can't sleep at night if i'm making stuff up so there's yeah. a little bit of a negative um push there for me uh i your idea about scientists and engineers that would be interesting to explore i don't think i know enough about that on the surface though i think scientists are more wasteful in a good way they are willing to explore a lot of things and dump most of the experiments because they didn't yield the sort of data they were looking for so uh, on the on the face of it i think that makes sense oh it could just be make, me making shit up <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> but you know again it's it's the early stages of me starting to sort of intuitively feel like there is something there and and what that means practically is that i feel like my clients clients need just almost as much help perhaps as yours do in figuring out how they can be more disciplined about gathering the data that is ultimately going to contribute to them 
having this kind of expertise. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the secrets to that for your clients and my clients is to take advantage of any new employee you bring on because this person has an entirely fresh perspective, but they'd only have it for a couple of months. And then after that, they're used to the way you do things. So they can see what's unique about your firm like nobody else can. Now, they don't necessarily have the bravery to share all of it at first. So right. the key is to have them write it all down while it's fresh in their minds. And then later, once they've developed a sufficiently comfortable relationship with you to be candid, then to go back through their notes and talk about it and let them let every new employee be in charge of systematizing something because they're going to notice things that other employees won't notice. That's pretty great. Where do you think the whole idea of confidence and um, courage fits into this uh, this discussion? I know that's a super open-ended question, but I, I do have this the sense that uh, it takes courage to develop new expertise. I mean, may, maybe it's just driven by curiosity, but I think when you start charging money for it, you have to also have the courage. Yeah, I think you have to have the courage and the foolish outlook on life really to keep because the smarter you are the easier it is to just sit down on whatever you develop because in many cases it's better than what your competitors are already doing so there's just a, a really a big incentive for you not to mess with success and mm. so there has to be some spirit you have about constantly learning and a willingness to throw everything away like in your head, like, ah, oh, that was good stuff. I'm, I made a lot of money from it. I helped a lot of clients, but that's nothing like what I think could be true. So I'm going to spend more time even thinking about that. Some people, people get confidence from different places. Like some, some people get confidence because their clients um, love them and tell them that. So marketplace acceptance, other clients, other, other folks get confidence from better technique Others need confidence from just like underlying data sets. They really need to see that. And I think there's probably room for us all to be pushed towards greater confidence in different ways. I think the black box thing is so amazing. It's a real confidence boosting tool. But it also, it talk about finishing out this whole positioning exercise. So you and I both talked it's so much in our careers about how people position themselves themselves really well. This is really a factor in it because now all of a sudden you're developing something that is not replaceable. The better it is, the more unique it's going to be and the more you can charge for it. Yeah. Where was the threshold for you? I know I'm throwing personal questions your way, but um, you know, with your total business review, when did that, when did you feel like you had a, a corpus of data that you could work from? and start kind of credibly, I know you've referred to early clients as victims. <laughs> so, I mean, when right. did you feel like you could like really have that black box and apply to their situation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the first time I did the total business review was a complete shock to me. They, they asked me, well, what did I do for people? And, you know, I just made that name up on the mm -hmm. spot. That was 24 years ago. And I didn't, and I, I wouldn't have used that phrase except I didn't have any time to think of it. And then I just basically had to come up with the process. I would say about 40% of the process is still about the same. Mm -hmm. But the, the only um, pattern recognition that I had to bring to the table at that point was just seeing the inside of 
the performance of all these firms and comparing one to the next. And that didn't take any brilliance to do that. So that mm-hmm. was useful, but it wasn't really, it was more just, um, I guess, learning from the inside of lots of firms. There really wasn't much pattern recognition to it. In my case, and I, I'm hesitant to say whether this is typical or not, I could have been slower or faster than some people. I don't know. But the first time I really developed any sort of black box was four years into my consulting career. And so I had already worked with maybe 120 firms or something like that. So that's embarrassing in a way. Hmm. Uh, but I was sitting at a table in um, an outdoor cafe in San Diego, and I was starting to write out some things I wanted to talk to the client about the next day. And I recognized that I was saying some of the same things I'd said the week before, or wherever that was, I don't remember. And I decided, oh, my goodness, I am not being programmatic about this. I'm not really paying attention. I don't have that whiteboard with all those vertical and horizontal lines. I'm not writing these things up here to notice the patterns. And that's when everything changed for me. So that was four years into it. And that was about how to structure roles and all of the principles to make that work and and so on. And, and that work is still like it's it's not even close to finished. I'm still learning all kinds of things. I'd say there are probably four or five or so black boxes that I have, and each one has taken, you know, about four or five years to develop. And, and that's true for my clients as well, the ones that have those. You said something I, I want the folks at home to hear, which is maybe I'm just, maybe I'm the only one seeing this, but there's this um, this kind of delta between what you aspire to and what you had, like you, you said, I'm a little embarrassed that it took four years to do that. But to me, that's the, the leaning out over your skis thing or the risk taking thing is that you were willing to be in those consulting situations with something imperfect, right? Or something under yeah, development. 120 times, right. <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think that might be the, the sort of psychological linchpin to making this work is a willingness to be uncomfortable with where mm-hmm. you are now because you see the delta between where you want to be and where you are. But I'm not so sure our clients see that unless we just tell them, which I think is optional. Right, right. And yeah, and the nat- natural question when you hear that story is like, well, were you delivering value during those 120 instances before you started to get smarter in a more quantum way? And I would say I was. In fact, I don't have any doubt about that. And I would say that your clients and my clients are delivering value consistently. It's really – this is the difference between getting smarter a lot quicker and having more power at your positioning disposal. It's not really about delivering value. It's – you're still – I've come across very few clients that are not delivering value. And when that happens, I just urge them to close up. That mm-hmm. happens maybe – I've done that maybe 10 times over the years. But most of them are delivering good value. It's just not as much value as they could. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's another story I'm thinking of. You did a Google survey uh, once, I think you said, about sort of rating yourself as a manager relative to others. And the reason I'm hoping you can talk more about that is because – it was based on it wasn't based on having 50 or 100 clients under your belt it was something you could do almost on client 1 do you uh, am i providing enough yeah. detail that you remember what i'm talking about yes it was uh, i was working on a book at the time about management and leadership and 
I was curious about how accurate we are at self-assessing our abilities in certain areas. And what's odd is that some people regularly under-assess themselves, especially I think when it comes to intelligence, they do. They tend to over-assess themselves when it comes to positioning. They over-assess themselves when it comes to management leadership. And so the question I asked was, and it was just on a very simple seven-point Likert scale, L-I-K-E-R-T, a Likert scale that, that said, rate yourself as average, above average, or below average as a manager. And, you know, mathematically, we've got to have a distribution, even distribution across that mean, right? So that at half or below, half or above. And mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was, there was something like 60 responses for something. I was speaking at Adobe and, and I was getting ready to prepare for that talk. And I did this real quickly on the fly. And uh, two of them, I think, said they were worse than average. Three were average and all the rest were above average. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> but I kind of, it's like mathematically, that's impossible. But I wonder if we'd ask that same question about people's, uh, like slavery to process or their intelligence or their black boxes. I wonder where we would be there and why is it that we are, we can't accurately assess our own abilities there. That would be pretty interesting. I see something. I mean, I just have a, a much smaller data set that I'm working from, but I see, see something similar emer- seeming to emerge when it comes to uh, self-assessment of risk-taking ability. Mm. Where it's oh, a, what, what are you finding there? Yeah, that's interesting. Tell me. Um, what, what I'm seeing is that people rate themselves a little more highly when, when I ask for a self-assessment, uh, maybe a, a three or five point Likert scale, which for the folks at home, that's just like, you know, three or five radio buttons, you know, agree or disagree, you know, strongly agree, strongly disagree, that kind of thing. It's a very common surveying technique. Right. Um, so I see people uh, overestimate, over self, when they self-assess their risk-taking ability, they they rate themselves more highly than more objective measures, which are questions that I have sort of imported from the world of um, uh, finance uh, like mm. giving investment advice, right? And um, and I find that very interesting. And right. I have a theory about that, which is that you know, especially software developers, we're in a culture that celebrates risk taking. Mm. You know, there's so much um, in the press that covers, uh, let's say, uh, tech startups that just lionizes risk taking. And I think mm. it maybe influences us a little bit to think we're more risk taking than we actually are. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because our culture, like you're you're one of two people if you want to be celebrated. You are a crazy risk taker or you're somebody that empties yourself out for the world. You're mm-hmm. like a Mother Teresa or a Elon Musk and all the rest of you losers in the middle don't have a place in our world. And it, <laughs> it's kind of – it's sad, but it is interesting, isn't it? Like um, I just finished reading Hatching Twitter and – uh, I just could not help but but see in that story. It's like, oh my goodness! Like what I felt bad is about is like, why wasn't I in the right place at the right time? Because I could have done a better job than these boobs did, but I didn't. <laughs> but it's just, it's interesting to see how. Yeah, that I would I'd be interested to hear more about your study when you finish that. Well, yeah, it's 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 ongoing. It's just now part of the data that I collect with every person that I work with. So, um. That also, you know, I, I wrote you a long time ago. Um, how did you amass this data? And I remember you wrote back, and you were like, "Well, I just, you know, I came out of my client work," and I, I thought that was kind of brilliant because 
it's it's not a separate thing you have to maintain in your business. It's just like every time you get a new client, you get more data in your core data set. Am I right, right. about that? Exactly. You have to decide in advance what what's the core data set going to look like and then be consistent and force compliance on your client's part. So if you develop a really good survey and you help somebody who you get help from somebody who does survey design for a living, you have a great survey, then then don't deviate from it. You so now I've got twenty-three thousand surveys, the exact same survey completed by employees at marketing firms. Now we can run it through SPSS and get all kinds of interesting stuff, which somebody's doing for me right now. Or if you're asking for financial information or if you're asking for information about how the project is going to unfold, whatever it is that you're in the business of, be consistent with it. And then you can it makes the pattern matching so much easier if you throw the homework on your clients. But it's not just busy work. It's useful. But you throw them the homework. And if you use a consistent data set, then the pattern recognition is so much easier. I'm always constantly in various ways urging my clients to consider the fact that over half of IT projects fail. And there's got to be some way to do data collection in a way in service of improving that stat. I mean, it's a global stat, so one firm's not going to make that big of a dent in it. But, yeah. uh, you know, locally, to improve it locally with the clients you work with, there's just that just seems like a huge opportunity to me. I don't know if I sound like annoyed. I'm not annoyed, but I'm just flabbergasted at the size of the opportunity versus I haven't, I just haven't heard that many people talking about taking advantage of that opportunity to, to develop some idea or some viewpoint about how right. they can make a difference there. Yeah, right. I, my first thought when you said that is there, I hope there's a book, about that. If there isn't, then somebody needs to write it. I don't know enough about that subject, and there may already be a whole bunch of books, but if that's true that half or more than half of IT projects fail, then somebody needs to write a book about closing that gap somehow. Yeah, for sure. You, you Just before that, you, you had kind of mentioned a couple uh, tools and methodologies, you know, SPSS and, and um, purposeful rigidity in how you collect data. Are there others that are top of mind for you that might just spur thinking in in listeners about ways they can collect useful data? I probably would need to think a little bit more about that. I One of the things I would say is like at the opposite extreme of that, and that's mm-hmm. simply to take the data that you have and turn it completely inside out and and go travel to other countries and see how they do something outside of your environment and do as much of that at the beginning as possible before you land on a particular data set. Like Mm. I was thinking about this yesterday and thinking about our talk today. Like uh, if you go down to Guatemala where I go frequently just to go back and visit most folks, so most people skipped the wired phone generation down there. It was too expensive and there wasn't any point. They didn't have the money when when that technology was at its peak. So they went straight to cell phones, right? So now everybody's running around with a cell phone. And um, many of them are not on cell phone plans. They're unlocked. So how do you refill your cell phone cards? Well, they do it at traffic lights in almost every case. So it's like like um, vendors selling newspapers. Vendors are selling refills of 
of um, cell phone cards. And I'm thinking, okay, that is so strange, so different from my culture where I'm living now in the U.S. What can I learn from a completely different setting or sit down on a beach wall in Havana and talk with somebody or see how they do healthcare in Tanzania? Or it's like, so then if we translate that into your world, the world you serve, how do they do development in other kinds of countries? Or how would we do development if we were going to go into a prison and train folks to do it there? Or how would we do development if we were going to be doing it from the International Space Station? It's like, just really expand your thinking before you land on that data set so that you're not missing some of the obvious twists and turns that you could take to it. That's not really answering your question specifically, but it's just something that seems like an important part of the equation. Yeah, I agree. Um, It's interesting to note that if you look at the language that's used to describe the process in software development, it is, I'm actually not sure what came first, but it's, a lot of it is, appears to be borrowed from manufacturing, from lean manufacturing. Mm. And so just to kind of take your idea and run with it, you know, what would it look like to you, dear software developer, to interview, um, you know, some people who still do it the old fashioned way, the waterfall method, right. or um, who, May see what's happening in manufacturing today. Have they evolved beyond this idea of the lean methodology? So I think right. there's lots of applications for that idea to get outside your little box, <laughs> which is a right. fascinating box to be in. You're there by choice, so nothing wrong with that. But to periodically get outside of it, that's great. And and to live with some of the natural, I guess, inconsistencies in the whole thing like the idea of agile like if you're really a lot of people talk agile they're not really doing agile if you're really doing agile then scope is not part of your discussion and you also how do you do scheduling with agile and how do you how do you quote something like um how do you live with these totally different concepts and how will it stretch our thinking and it it's like it just blows your mind when you start thinking about how how you can hold those two juxtapositions in the same place that's great well david thank you this has been uh for me perhaps the highlight of my week Oh, well, thank you. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's such a nice um, nice change of pace from the normal podcast guesting. I appreciate you having me on and just letting us uh, kind of think, go wherever it goes. It's been fun. Appreciate it, Phil. You bet. Um, I, I think it would be a crime if anyone listening has not checked out your book, uh, The Business of Expertise. Can can we just end with you um, doing the obligatory call to action about how folks can oh. find out more about that? Sure. This is a book I published. Uh, this is my fifth book uh, last late last year. If they want to know more about it, it's expertise.is. Expertise is. It's available on Amazon or from that place. It's, it's the first book I wrote that I really, really loved writing. It's about um, narrowing your expertise and um, developing it into a business. It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, it really shows. It's, it's uh, I mean, as longtime listeners of this podcast know, it's one I'm enthusiastic about and recommend quite quite frequently. Well, thanks again, David. Thank you, Philip.